0: Um, I'm going to lead us in uh, breaking of bread, and uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read us a passage from Exodus 32, and you're going to be thinking as we're going through it, why on earth is Harry leading us into breaking of bread by reading this passage? Just stay with me. I promise you, I will make it relevant. Um, But just before we get to Exodus 32, um, I like a good summary just to set a context of where we are. So here's where we're up to, okay? The Israelites have been in Egypt for 400 years, and they have been oppressed and abused in a total comprehensive way. Think maybe something like the the Rohingya of today, what's going on with the Uyghurs in China, and what is probably set to take place in Afghanistan. Life is crazy hard. Death is rife, and there is no rest whatsoever generation after generation after generation then we hear about this guy moses and moses as a as a baby as a as a baby israelite he escaped a purge uh, and then he was um kind of accidentally almost not accidentally because god was in control but he was adopted into the egyptian royal family uh, and then as he grew up he had a bit of an anger problem and he got caught murdering an egyptian sh- soldier Then he ran away to live in the wilderness for 80 years as a shepherd, which is some come down. God then decides to call this guy, Moses, to be the man to lead his people out of 400 years of slavery from Egypt into the promised land. Uh, Moses refused five times, so not a great start for Moses. And then he finally agrees, and Moses comes back, into the fold, and he's a guy that nobody's seen for 80 years. It's a bit strange. (laughs) When, When you kind of put it like that in its summary form, it's a bit weird and wacky and wonderful. God has done nothing really that's visible for 400 years, and then he picks this guy that nobody's seen for 80 years, who doesn't even want to do the job to come and lead the Israelites out into the promised land. And these people, these Israelites, you know, they, they've, they've been in Egypt for these 400 years. You know, they've, they've probably got some stories that they didn't have a Torah written down. They might know about Adam and Eve, the, the stories of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph that were handed down through the generations. But really, it's probably been mixed around with all of the local Egyptian religion at the time. Remember, there's been no commandment as yet to worship God alone. And so this guy comes, Moses, to say God is going to free them from their harsh slavery and blow me down. That's exactly what God goes and does. And he doesn't do it in this sneaky, surreptitious way. He does it in a totally obvious, hey, I'm not just real, but I'm going to totally and utterly humiliate all of the other Egyptian gods in the process. And he sends these seven plagues, which dramatically show God's sovereignty over and above all of the other Egyptian deities. And after the last plague, God he kills the firstborn of all of the Egyptians. The Israelites are finally released. But then they're chased down after Pharaoh changes his mind. They're stuck on the edge of the sea. And then there's this massive cinematic moment. Moses, by the power of God, parts the sea. And then they all get through the waters. The waters collapse. And the army dies, totally obliterated. Then, over the next three months, God provides water, he provides food, he saves the army from um, a big fight with the Amakalites, um, and he provides wisdom through Jethro when Moses is getting too caught up in the administration of this nation of people that he's looking after. Then they end up at the foot of Mount Sinai. And here, God descends spectacularly spectacularly. I mean, they will never have seen anything like this at all. It's a cloud of glory of fire, earthquake, noise. The sense of might and power and dread would have just been palpable amongst all of the people. And God is there on this mountain, and he invites, when you read it, he invites all the people up to be there together with him on top of this mountain, and uh, they're too scared. <laughs> Rightly so. <laughs> I think, when you, when you read what they're seeing, when they've never seen anything like that before. No, Moses, you go up, please. <laughs> we're a bit too scared to come up. Uh, and some of the elders of the tribes, they go up as well. And when they come back, the only thing that they can describe is the color of the plank that God was stood on at the time. They didn't have words to be able to describe what they were experiencing. Moses is up there for 40 days and 40 nights. God's revealing the plans for the tabernacle where he wants to dwell with the people. Um, but, but the Israelites, they're not used to this kind of time delay. And they're starting to get a bit on edge. Okay? Does this sound like an easy God to deal with? We're feeling very comfortable about all of this. That brings us to Exodus 32. So I'm reading from the NASB. Now, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people assembled around Aaron and said to him, Come, make us a God who will go before us. For this Moses, the man who brought us from the land of Egypt, we do not know what happened to him. Aaron said to them, Tear off the gold rings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people tore off the gold rings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. Then he took the gold from their hands and fashioned it with an engraving tool and made it into a cast metal calf. And they said, this is your God, Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Now, when Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. So the next day, they got up early and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and to drink and got up to engage in lewd behavior so this story is um nice and relatable for us isn't it but here's the idea that is going on um you've got this people and they're saying i don't know how to handle smoking mountain fire god who calls our leader away for 40 days and 40 nights and it seems like he is now gone but you know what we do have categories for idols Because these are gods that we can make and we can handle and we know how to feed them and we know how to throw parties for them as well. We know how to do this. This is normal for us. So they go and ask Aaron, Moses' brother and right-hand man throughout all of the plague stuff before. They turn to him for help and what does he do? He builds a golden calf. Now some of you will know this already, but in, in Canaan to the north of Sinai, where Abraham lived and, and then also in Egypt, bull worship or gods that, that looked like bulls were quite normal. They were kind of a fertility god. It was very, very common. And so what Aaron is doing here is he is reverting to type by creating this golden calf. But what you can easily miss is something that Aaron says. And uh, we're back in th- um, Exodus 82. Now, when Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. That is Yahweh. And so they make the calf and they call it Yahweh. They create a new category for the God that they don't understand. So you can't pin down God, this, this is Yahweh. He, he did the business in Egypt. He did it very, very well. He protected all of the people, but they still don't have a handle on him. And this is the first time people make an idol in the Bible, and it's of people wanting to replace who God really is with some version of Yahweh that is more manageable. Ah, now, you see, I can work with this Yahweh, and, and I'll let this Yahweh be the one that leads us out of here. They become a spiritual community that tries to domesticate God in some way. And so this is where the story becomes quite intense for for you and for me because this is what the Israelites are saying. I want to follow Yahweh, but then look how quickly they suddenly go, but I'm going to do it in a way that is more understandable for me. And we've probably done this at some point today already each in every one of us. The point of the golden calf narrative is to say God's purposes have always been to work out his plan in the world through a covenant people, but there is a problem. The covenant people, from the moment they're married to God, have not wanted to be married to the real Him. This is the important strategy of what the Bible is trying to say, that 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 all of this is part of what took place. In the garden with Adam and Eve. The people through whom God wants to rule the world are unfaithful from the beginning, which then creates this this tension. Whatever God's going to have to do, He's going to have to now not just fix the world, but fix His own covenant people. And when we look at this, it's supposed to be a reflection on us. This is the human situation, this is what humans do. You feeling comfortable? I'm not. What's totally radical and profound is the way that God comes and responds. You see, the theology behind idol creation is that you create this place for which the power of the God can come and inhabit that object. And that is here what they're trying to do, to force God into their particular cultural context, into something that is more palatable and something that is more understandable. How often have I done that? My experience in particular of suffering and hardship and trial and testing is so limited because of the era, era that I'm growing up in. We've never been more prosperous before. We've never been safer before. No real experience of, of hunger, of poverty, of danger. For me as a, as a white man, of, of discrimination, I've never really, apart from being ginger at school, but when the tough times come, what am I like? What am I like when, when I recognize that God is sovereign over things happening that I don't really understand? What is my default response? Do I take God for who he is, or do I try and domesticate him? Am I willing to do the hard work of building relationship and trusting him or not? Thousands of years later, God sends His Son Jesus, who begins a revolution that changed the world. His death on the cross marked the point at which you and I can come back to God as His covenant people, as His family. Rather than creating a God, uh, sorry, rather than creating an idol for God to inhabit as something we're comfortable with, God chooses to come and live inside you and me. Isn't that amazing how he turns that story on its head? He chooses to live inside you and me. This crazy, smoking-fire mountain God. But that is just sometimes how we perceive him in, in our lack of understanding. You know, The character of God is revealed by him just after the golden calf narrative. And he says he is compassionate and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in faithfulness and truth. That is the most quoted verse in the whole Bible. And he lives inside you and me to bring renewal and restoration. And that's pretty incredible and pretty terrifying because I know what I'm like. You feeling comfortable? Each time we come and we take of Jesus in this amazing sacrament and this amazing sign, we remind ourselves about this, that Jesus loves us irrevocably, irrevocably, totally, completely for who you are. But there's that old adage isn't there that God loves you just the way you are, but he loves you too much to leave you just as you are. He is totally and utterly committed to you. To see you be all that you can be and to see us as a covenant family be all that we can be as well. That despite our futile attempts to domesticate God, despite our unwillingness at times to see and receive God for who he really is, he is there for us. He is there for you and for me. And so we come to break the bread. If you've got your bread just in front of you. We say, Father, thank you for this body that was broken. Thank you for the the sacrifice of Jesus and for the way that you have made for us. We take the blood and we say, Father, thank you for your son, Jesus, for sending him and for his, his blood being poured out For the covenant to be made with you. For this incredible relationship that we can have. Father, we thank you. Fortunately, we've got a chance to... Respond in this moment. We're we going to give ourselves up in worship to God. Are we, are we willing to be a community of people that sees God for who he really is? A community that is willing to inhabit the uncomfortable place on the mountain of God. God is not interested in a half relationship to take it when you please on your terms, in your own way, but as we worship Jesus now, let us just encourage you. you know, it's, it's all or nothing. I don't know where you're at. I don't know what you're going through. And it, it doesn't mean today that everything is necessarily going to get sorted. There, there's gonna be stuff that together with God and this community, you're gonna to need to work through. There's no such thing as instant discipleship. But we can make a choice today that will write the next chapter in our story, that will open up our lives to Him and expose us in a wonderfully, dangerously uncomfortable way to the plans and purposes that God has laid out for us.